Today we are going to talk about surviving the recession. Things to do and not to do and why people go under and why others stay afloat and why some do well and some don't. Those are all very good questions. I mean, I think it's safe to say that a lot of people are, you know, let's say confused. They don't know which way to turn and they are wondering if others are doing well or not so well. And I thought that it was a good idea to record a podcast on, you know, why we are not going under and why we are here to stay and why we are doing well, even though it is a recession. And I think that's sort of the topic. And it's not really a photography topic because it's really more about business than about photography. But when you run a photography business, it's an important subject anyway. Yes, it is. And a lot of people are asking us how we're doing. They're curious. And the reason why we're curious is because they can see that a lot of businesses are not doing very well. And it's not just businesses. It's also individuals. It's uh, all sort of people that are losing their house or that are losing their jobs or that are getting in financial trouble in one way or another. Not because of their own doings, but because, you know, it's a consequence of uh, the economic situation. Well, and I think we should take advantages of what the recession does during business times. I know for me, it gives me more time to uh, contact customers by email. I have much more time to talk to them on the phone. I do follow-up emails, tell them how nice it was to talk to them on the phone. Uh, and to hear from them again, even if they, if I email them personally regarding a workshop and, you know, they decline or they can't make it or something else is going on, but we still have that uh, communication going on where, hey, you know, it's, it's good to hear from you. How are you doing? And, and I see positive things coming out of it. Yeah, and, you know, it's better that way because you have to remain positive. I mean, there's no doubt that a recession is affecting everybody, whether in a good way or in a bad way. It's having a consequence. And uh, one of the things that we suddenly want to do and we encourage everybody to do is remain positive. You have to take advantage of the situation. And like you said, you know, we have to, and not just us, but anybody that runs a business, a photography business or another business, has to do more marketing during the recession. Because otherwise, if you stop marketing, then I think you're just going to die waiting. Yes. Because if it was difficult selling before the recession, it's going to be harder now. And if you weren't doing any marketing before and you were selling, if you're not doing any marketing now, you're going to stop selling. Because before you were taking advantage of the fact that people had a lot of disposable income. Yes. And one of the things that we are seeing happen among the businesses from which we buy and the people that we know and just uh, observing what's going on around us is how many businesses that we are not marketing before and that we are doing great because there was so much disposable income are basically going under. And by word of mouth, they used word of mouth a lot. Yeah, well, uh, some builders, including the one that we bought this house from, their policy was no marketing, only word of mouth. And guess what? Word of mouth doesn't work anymore when, uh, you know, the economy is bad and people are foreclosing on their homes. You have to advertise. And the result is that they have literally lost a lot of their business. Well, I've noticed other businesses that are very successful, which sell luxury products. They are also taking advantage of the uh, recession in that they know that they're not going to have many sales, but they have the time mm -hmm. to spend with the customer. And uh, just like the country club that we just joined recently, hey, come on up for lunch, you know, and we'll talk mm -hmm. about the membership and how everything works here, and I'll give you a tour. And 
you know, it was uh, very positive and a, it was a lot of fun. Um, the, she had plenty of time to spend with us and introduce us to me other members of the club. And also uh, just the, uh, the uh, cooking, the stores that we've gone into recently that sell high quality cookware. Right. Uh, they also have plenty of time, mm -hmm. you know, to ask you questions. Uh, what would you like? What do you like to cook? You know, have you ever used one of these products before? Well, no, I hadn't. But, you know, if Emerald uses it on the Food Network, <laughs> I want one. <laughs> and Jadia, you know, Everyday Italian, you know, I saw them cooking in those pots. And you know what? I was like, I got to have one of those pots. I didn't know how much they cost. And you did not really care because no. you're not buying based on price. You're buying based on value and on the fact that, you, you know, you're sold out on the product even before you've actually learned the price of the product. Yes. And, and, and we know that, you know, I mean, even an expensive pot isn't going to cost $10,000. You know, no. we're not buying a Ferrari here. We are buying a pot. So even if it costs $500, you know, we know that that's about the price, right? So, so the damage is controlled, right? But, you know, one thing that's very interesting about what you're saying is that it's a great time to be a consumer right now. It is. Not only are you getting better service, more time out of the salespeople, you're also getting incredible deals. Yes. I mean, we joined a country club and we got an incredible deal. And we join because we want to join, but they have, you know, a very interesting offer that, you know, we benefit from because they are trying to boost up membership. Yes. We bought, you know, these parts with an incredible price cut. I mean, these are French parts, you know, Le Creuset. And the lady told me that I was buying them here in the United States for less money than I would pay in France, even though they are made in France. And I have no doubt about it because in France, my parents could not afford them. So now we're buying these parts at, what was it, 30% to 50% off, brand new, of the showroom floor, because, you know, it's the recession. Right. And we've been doing a lot of work here around the house. We've landscaped the backyard. We've put pavers. We've put gutters. We've had, hand, you know, custom built furniture uh, put in. And every time we're getting a fantastic deal. We are. So it's a good time to be a consumer, provided that you have you know, disposable income. Of course, most people or few people have disposable income, and we're going to get into why, you know, in a short time. But if you do have in disposable income or you have some money that you can spend, this is a great time to do it because everybody not only is willing to help and be very serviceable and give you a lot of time, but they're also willing to negotiate. They are willing to give you a deal. They are giving special offers. They are, they are doing all they can to really accommodate the customer. And that contrasts us with what we were seeing happen before the recession, where some of these people would not even give you the time of day. Yeah. I mean, you had to wait weeks to get the service, if not months, and they wouldn't negotiate. And, you know, it was basically to the advantage of the businesses, not to the advantage of the consumer. So, you know, I think it's, you know, something important to notice. Uh, and, and of course, because business is slower, even though we are doing well, business is slower, we have more time. So it's another good opportunity to do these things because we have the time to take care of all the little details and plan it and so on. But also, you know, in terms of, you know, your customers, but also in terms of, you know, improving the business. You have some downtime here where you can thoroughly... Uh, look at the business, what needs to be improved on or what you need to work on uh, because you have more time. And so, you know, from a business standpoint, it helps me to just kind of step back a little bit, take a look, 
Uh, I take notes, you know, what I need to do, what I need to work on, what I'm going to work on next. And I, uh, you know, I'm taking advantage of this time. Making well. changes that we could not make if we were so busy that we had no time to do anything else. Yeah. What I've also noticed with these uh, business trades that we have hired to do, the gutters and the pavers and whatnot, is that they are, you know, even the pavers, that was custom, you know, because we had a certain design we wanted to follow, so they had to do certain cuts and everything. But they're spending, they're really listening to the customer now, and they're paying more attention to detail. They're not rushing through the job. They don't have, you know, job after job after job lined up where, you know, you're just kind of run through the mill here. They're, they're, they're taking their time. They're doing good jobs. We haven't had to have the workers come back two or three times to fix something. Which is like uncommon. Like we did in, uh, when the building was at its peak. Yeah. Uh, you had, I mean, just trying to get them to come back and redo something or refinish something, you were, uh, had to book weeks out, literally. You know, I can't even get to that. I'm three weeks out. Uh, yeah. When the air conditioner broke at the peak of the market, yeah. you know, he said, I can't come out for a week. I said, hey, hey, hey it's 99 degrees yeah. in my house. I run a business here. I can't wait a week, you know. And that air conditioner, this was the warranty person. I called somebody else up and said, hey, can you come today? He said, you bet. Well, forget about the warranty. <laughs> yeah. You know, you go with somebody who can get there right away. Yeah, because you need air conditioning more than you need to save $100. But, yeah, it's all good, very good points because what is happening is that they have more time. And so, therefore, they're able to do the job better, paying attention to what they're doing. And the end product is that we are getting the job done on the first try, basically. Well, yes. before, I think on average, we had to have anybody here three times before the job was done to our, to our standards or to our satisfaction. I agree. And now they come once and it's done. What a change. It's better service. So like I said, it's a better time. It's a great time to be a consumer. And, you know, from that perspective, I'm, I'm starting to like it. You know, I wish the recession was there, you know, for another little bit because, hey, you know, we are getting great service and uh, they are listening to you and they are giving you what you want because in a sense, you know, you have leverage as a customer. Um, and, and that's what matters, you know, in, in negotiating uh, it all always matters who's got the leverage, and right now the consumer has the leverage. And, and that's a great time to be a consumer. So we, we want to look at the positive aspects of this thing. And like you said, you know, improving your business, you know, cleaning up shop in a way. You know, when do you clean your kitchen? Not when you have Thanksgiving dinner. That's not the day to clean your kitchen. The day to clean your kitchen is when nobody's home and you don't have to cook, right? And it's the same with a business. You don't improve your business when you're running full steam with orders that you can barely fulfill. You clean up your business, you improve things when there is a downtime. Yes. And this is a downtime for many people. And like I said, even though we're doing well, it is slower. And it's a great time to improve things, to look at things that we couldn't do before. And, and to clean up, you know, the general process that we are using to, to make the improvements that we wanted to make before and didn't have the time to make. Well, I think this is also the time uh, that we also need to be very careful about our attitude and about what we think about. We, remember, we just saw the Earl Nightingale little mm -hmm. video the other day because now that we have some downtime we can actually we uh, can watch videos <laughs> can i had a pile videos. of them i had like 20 of them that i had bought over the years you 20 know. dvds uh, including one from cartier bresson and and uh, many others and i had them piled up i didn't have time to watch them and guess what i've watched them all 
Right. I'm done. I can cross it off my list. But the important <laughs> thing I learned from that Earl Nightingale little video wasn't even that long maybe 17 minutes or so the strangest secret is that you have to be very careful about what you think about and during this time you can't you have to be positive because what's going to happen is what's in your mind mm -hmm. you, we have to push right. away those negative thoughts right. we have to stop them immediately when they start creeping in we need to be focused on you know the the positive aspects mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people think, you know, the recession sucks. And uh, that's a negative thought. And they immediately start to think, well, you know, I can't wait until it ends. And, uh, well, it's going on. I'm not going to do good. And they think very negatively. I don't think that the recession sucks. I think the recession is there. I can't change it. I'm, I'm not in control of the recession, but I'm in control of what I think. I'm in control of how I approach the recession. And I approach it from the perspective that it's a great time to be a consumer and it's a great time to improve your business and it's a great time to take some time off. I mean, we joined a country club uh, because we have the time to go there and exercise and swim and, and play facilities. tennis and use the facilities. We don't play golf. No. Uh, you know, a student of mine told me that uh, <laughs> I should never take golf because it doesn't fit. <laughs> but we play tennis. We won't mention uh, his name uh, per se, but his first name is Bob, and I listened. Uh, <laughs> I said, Bob, I heard you. I joined the Clown Creek Club, but I want to make sure to you know that it's not to play golf. I'm not a golf member. But uh, we joined it because we have the time to take advantage of the facilities. But also during this time, I have noticed that you and I are reading a lot. We are reading a lot. We're reading yeah. about marketing. We're reading about uh, artists. I, I'm starting to take out the art history books again. Uh, I've started painting. I've completed two paintings. That's like a wow. I haven't done that for years. You didn't you have know? the time. I didn't have yeah. the time. And now it, I'm starting to get really excited. Okay, what mm. am I going to do next? What am I going to uh, It's a vacation. The, the recession, if you run a business, provided that you're doing well. You know, you can't run a business and have no income, but we have a very good income. Otherwise, we couldn't do the improvements that we've been talking about. We couldn't join a country club. We couldn't do any of these things. P provided that you have a steady stream of income, it's a great opportunity to take a vacation when it's slow. And that's what we are doing, you know, and, and we enjoy it. But even as far as reading just inspirational material, mm -hmm. you know, what inspires you, what motivates you, you know, take advantage of this time, read those books. Because eventually the recession will stop. We don't know exactly when, but it's bound to eventually end. And when it ends, we'll be ready to start again because we'll be rested, we'll have developed uh, yeah our energy our batteries won't be recharged full, or regenerized exactly yeah. we'll have a plan for the future we've streamlined our business and we're ready we have many projects that we are working on and uh, we're going to go back at it uh, even better than before you know we're here to stay and this is something that uh, we're taking advantage of in a way so so there's really you know like i said you can't control the recession because you can't control things that are out of your control but you can certainly control not only us but anybody that's listening to this can control their attitude regarding the recession and definitely you don't want to get all depressed and you know fall all over yourself you you don't want to be despondent you want to be in control of your attitude regarding the recession and like i said it's a great time to uh, you know plan for the future and, and do and things take, that you don't and have take time. care of your health yeah. exactly you know exercise uh yeah. you know home-cooked meals a lot mm. of people now are starting to do their own gardens so and the they pots are on, yeah the pots are on sale 
Yeah. <laughs> or get, well, I'm excited about yeah. cooking now. And, uh, but I have a lot of friends now that are doing their own gardens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, growing organic lettuce and vegetables and uh, herbs mm-hmm. and, and just really enjoying the time and spending it doing that. Yeah, what are we going to do when a recession stops? We won't have any more time for all well, of that. Well, we don't want to do, well, <laughs> I don't want to go back into the fast food again. That's you right. Know, stay yeah. away from that. Yeah. You well, know. you know, the fact is that regardless of recession or no recession, our approach is to not do quantity. So that basically means that even though we would be more busy if there was no recession, we would never be so busy as to not have any free time. Uh, and that leads into another aspect of all of this, which uh, is very important, and that is, especially for photographers, ask yourself if you have a hobby. Because once you make photography, which for most of us was a hobby to start with, once you make photography your profession, then you need to find a new hobby. That's true. And most photographers never do that. And I was one of them. I had a customer one day that asked me when I was uh, selling my work what my hobbies were, and I drew a blank. And then I looked at him and I had to acknowledge the fact that I did not have any. My, provi- my hobby had become my profession and that was my life. And my life was basically photography. I had nothing else. And you were a slave to it. I was a slave to it. And I, you know, basically, if I did not do photography, I was either eating or sleeping. That was it. Right. And I've so talked to a lot of... So where did the sense of fulfillment come in for you? Well, it, for a long time, the sense of fulfillment comes from the fact that you manage to make your hobby your profession. Right. And that can carry on four, five years, you know, sometimes as much as 10 years. And then one day, you run out of steam. Because fulfillment cannot just be doing your work. Right. Fulfillment has to be something that, in a sense, you don't put a price on. You don't have a financial value. You don't have a number on and at that point, that's when you realize that, and, and a lot of photographers never realize it. That's the interesting thing, because they struggle so much. They always fight the lack of income. You know, they have a real problem with cash flow because they don't price their work high enough. And so they, ne- they make a sale, and as soon as that sale is done, they think of the next sale, because they need to make many sales in order to generate substantial income, to generate even the income they need. The way we have it structured now, we make one sale, and we can basically take off. We are fine. We, we can co- close the shop for, yes. for some time because that sale is substantial and will carry us for quite a while. So we are running it the proper way. But when you're running it on the basis of volume, you're always, no sale matters. What matters is the total of all the sales. You know, that's what we were doing in the Grand Canyon before we saw any better. I would make a sale and I would, I would write that sale on a little piece of paper and what matters wasn't that sale, it was the total at the end of the day. Right. And if I did not have a good total, it did not matter how many sales I had. You know, you know what I'm saying? Well, now, some days, we have one sale, but you know, we can close shop for the day <laughs> because the sale is substantial. So that's really where it's at. You know, the fulfillment doesn't come from, I, I guess this fulfillment for a long time might come from selling your work. It's satisfying. But then you get to a point, and I got there pretty fast because I, I did so well so quickly that, and I mentioned it several times, I, I told you and many people, it doesn't matter if I make another sale, I've sold enough photographs to satisfy me for the rest of my life. I mean, I've sold tens of thousands of them, that will do. Not that I don't want to sell anymore, but that the fulfillment doesn't come from that. So where does the fulfillment come in? It comes in from your other activities that are non-photographic. 
And that's when I started collecting things. You know, I collect sports cars. Becoming a member of the country club is a fulfillment because, you know, it's a high-value item. It's expensive and it's exclusive. You have to be accepted and it's a very elite club. Um, you know, a certain lifestyle, you know, where you live is very important. I mean, I, you know, people say, how do you gauge, the, you know, how do you know how well one of your competitors is doing? Just go on the internet and check the value of your property. Just log on, do a search for the value of the homes that they live in. There's no lying there. People don't live in a trailer unless they have to. <laughs> you know, nobody in America lives under their means in regards to housing. They might live slightly under or slightly above, but if somebody can afford a million dollar house, they are about at that level. If they can afford a $10 million house, they are about at that level. They might be slightly under or slightly over, depending on whether they overextend themselves or live slightly under their means, but they are about that level. Just do that. That tells you everything there is to know. Um, there's no lying there. You know, check their financial health. How much in debt are they? <laughs> you know, do they lease cars or do they buy them cash? You know, I mean, do they own their home? You know, all of these are very important answers. I, I work with students regularly that tell me this guy, you know, this competitor is outselling me day after day after day after day. And, and, and it really bothers me. And I tell them, hey, listen, <laughs> you know, don't worry about it. Because how much he's selling is no relationship to how much he's making. Right. He may be selling 2,000 pieces a day. If they're all selling for $10, it doesn't matter. You know, you probably have more profit at the end of the day than he does. Sometimes when I would do a show, just one of my sales was more than what yeah. they were doing. I mean, most of the shows, exactly. Items. Most of the shows that we do now, if we sell three pieces, we have a higher profit than most artists selling a couple hundred of them because our prices are so substantial. You know, they are what we call appropriate, adequate prices, you know, meaning they sustain our lifestyle and they sustain the level of leverage at which I am, you know, um, which I did not have at the beginning because I just started. Now I have now published two books. I've had many one-man shows. I'm pretty well known. I've had many, many articles, you know, about me, you know, interviews. You know, I'm, I have a certain level of leverage that I could not muster in the beginning. And so that's an important step, you know. But, yeah, you... You know, and a lot of people get really confused thinking that their competitor is doing super well when actually, you know, they are basically just breaking even sometimes. And I always tell them, I say, you know, look at the car they drive, look at the house that they live in, do a financial background check, you know, and if you have to pay for it, pay somebody to do it. It's not illegal. Find out the lowdown of where they stand financially. What's their financial health? Because that eventually will tell you everything. Right. You know, uh, and because at a show, every artist wants to pretend that they are doing great. But are they doing really great? How can you know? I mean, unless you stand by their booth and write down every sale, you never know. Uh, you, the only way to know is where they are at financially. You know, you want to become as knowledgeable as their accountant as much as you can without breaking the law. But you can do real estate searches for free on the Internet. Well, like our accountant said, you know, some of these small businesses make money in spite of themselves. In spite of themselves. I, that was I stunning. Would, it was. I was floored. I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? He says, you know, what I mean is that if you were to just do what they do, you have to be lucky to make money. That's what he's saying. Yes. They, they are just fortunate. And, and that brings us to a very important point. What happens to these people when there is a recession? Their luck runs out. And what happens? They, they lose their business. Well, sometimes, uh, you know, when we teach marketing, the marketing seminar, or even when people come to the house to do consulting, 
and you ask them, well, how much does it cost you, mm-hmm. you know, to for that product, you know, right. to create that product? How much does yeah. that product cost? To create cost? this frame piece, how much do you have in it? And they it? have no idea. They have no idea. Yeah. I do the taxes every year, and mm-hmm. I know exactly how much it costs me yeah. to produce each and every single piece. How, and, how can you negotiate if you don't know the cost of, you know, doing something, right? I mean, let's say you go to a dealership and you want to buy a car and you tell the guy, you know, listen, you want, you know, just for the sake of argument, you want 25000 for this car, I give you 20000 And the guy doesn't know how much it's costing him to have his car. How can he negotiate? If he says yes, he's basically taking a gamble. If he says no, he's also taking a gamble. Well, it doesn't, right. it's not even, I mean, it's part of negotiation as well, but also the pricing. Because sure. they don't know what to price the work because they don't know right. how much it costs them to make that product. Right. But but truly, and the cost of the work is never related to the cost of making the work. Not in art. You know, not in art. I well, mean, I always take the example of a Picasso. It's not priced according to the canvas and the pen that's on it. Well, some of them are pricing yeah. their work to what their buddy is charging right. next door. But, but that's because <laughs> they haven't studied with me. Right. <laughs> because right. the first thing that I'll tell them if you study with me is that you don't do that. You become smart. In art, you never price the work based on how much it costs you to produce it. You price the work based on how much leverage you have. Because you know what? It doesn't cost the most expensive photographer today, as far as fine art pricing goes, any more to produce his work than it costs the, less ex- the, less t- the least expensive photographer selling his work today. It doesn't cost any more. An inkjet print is an inkjet print. If you use the same printer and the same paper, it will cost you the same. There's no magic. You know, well, so whether so, let's say an inkjet print case can't cost us ten dollars. What's going to make somebody charge a thousand for it of twenty dollar is leverage. There's no secret about that, and it's marketing. It's not the cost of making the piece. I would argue that the cost of making the piece is greater to the beginner, because they waste more paper and more ink because they are not as good. You know, they they, tr- they go through trial and error. Um, I mean, now that I have the experience that I have, I go through a whole lot less trial and error. I mean, I have a very streamlined process, and I can be nitpicky and, and you know, choosy and whatnot, um, but I can print a very good print right away at the first try, because my system is calibrated to the T, and I know exactly what I'm doing. They come out, they are sellable. I can fine-tune them, but they are sellable right away. Right. So I save money. You know, so basically, even though my prices now are tens of times higher than they were, you know, when I started, I'm actually spending less money making my prints. So you know, that's the nature of art, right? Right. You know. Yeah, it's. I can say the same with painting. Yeah. It's not like I'm wasting a lot yeah. of sheets of. Uh, and as long as an artist believes that the price of their work is based on how much they spend, they'll never make any money. You can't make money. This is not how art is priced. So you're basically going down the wrong alley, you know. Uh, the the goal is is totally different, you know. It's it's you, you know. Uh, art is about the artist, <laughs> right? And so, you know. Uh, and the only way to increase your income in art is to increase your prices. There is no other way, you know. Anybody that says I'm going to increase my income by increasing my volume is basically saying, okay, I'm perfectly fine building an art factory and building a fulfillment warehouse and having employees and basically running a corporation so large that I won't see the time of day. That, that's what we are saying, because that's where we were headed. 
No, you don't want to do that. You, you, you certainly don't want to do that unless that's your goal, you know. Right. But otherwise, you can make a very, very good income the way we do, just, you know, two people. Um, you know, I, can you do it alone? I don't think so. I think there is a need for two people. Uh, should it be just because you don't want to do everything? You know, I mean, you can't answer the phone and create artwork at the same time. You know, you, you have to divide the task. Well, some people ask me, you know, how you can do all the things that you do, and I... No, the know. secret is I don't do them all. Exactly. <laughs> I, you you know, do your part obvious. of the business, yeah. I do my part of the business. I don't answer the phone. Yes. Yeah, and That's I don't answer the phone for a simple right reason. There. I can't write a book and answer the phone at the same time. It's not possible. You know, if you call a photographer... And you can try this immediately. Just find a bunch of photographers that you like, find their phone numbers, call them all, place 10 phone calls, and see if they answer the phone. Those that answer the phone are not fully dedicated to their task. Because otherwise, they couldn't. How can you write a book and answer the phone all day long? It's impossible. It your thoughts will not flow. So either you're writing the book at night, or very early in the morning, or you're writing and, and, and answering the phone, and guess what? Answering the phone takes precedent. Uh, how can you color correct a photograph with, you know, every possible bit of your body involved in getting this photograph to express your feelings if you're answering the phone at the same time? It's right. not possible. I mean, you know, there might be people out there that can do it. More power to them. I'm not one of them, and I don't know any of them. Um, you know, the, the secret to doing more things is to divide labor and have people take care of some of the things. You know, sure. We don't waste time. We're very economical about time. We, uh, you know, we, uh, we don't go to stores, and I haven't been to a camera store, I mean, I'm not lying, since at least 10 years, a physical camera store. I haven't worked in a physical camera store for at least 10 years. I go online, and I have everything delivered. We don't go to most supply stores. No. We have it delivered. Most of the time, we get free delivery, sh you know. I just have a minimum yeah. of $50, but a case of yeah. map boards. Saves a lot of time. Yes. I'd rather go out. That. I mean, you know, honestly, and talking about what we talked before, I'd rather go out to go to the country club than go out to go to a camera store. Because I can shop online while I can't go to the country club online. Right. right. <laughs> you know, so, so it's a matter of, you know, I'd rather drive my sports cars for fun than drive a truck, you know, picking up supplies right and left. I'd rather have UPS do that for me. So yeah. it, it's also a, a matter of... of knowing what your priorities are you know if i go out of the house i want to have fun i don't want to go pick up mad boards and frames right you know <laughs> if they're going to deliver it for free you know what you you go you know why do you want to deal with the phoenix traffic <laughs> people ask us all the time how do you i don't how do you deal with the traffic well we deal with the traffic a very simple way we don't commute we stay home we don't go anywhere i mean i've we've been sometimes Saying days, day, a week <laughs> without going anywhere except in where we live, you know, and we go to the country club and we stay in the community, uh, and we drive the roads where there is nobody, right? Uh, or bike them. Yeah. And and how much time does that save? It saves enormous amount of time. It does. Yeah. I mean, people on average in the United States commute about three hours a day. That is anywhere the you know average commute is an hour and a half, or an hour including all the traffic delay and so on. The distances are not so, uh, so much great as it's the traffic. People work five times a day, five, five days a week, sorry, <laughs> not five times a day, five days a week, three hours, that's 30 hours, uh, 15 hours. So they waste 15 hours just commuting. Do we waste 15 hours commuting? No, we waste zero. So that's 15 hours more that we can wait, mm -hmm. uh, work, right? 
That's significant. Or That's over one week. So over one month, it's four times 15. That's 60 hours. Mm -hmm. 60 hours, which is a full week, basically, over a week of, of time. And people wonder how we do what we do. Well, we don't commute. That's one way. Right? And then we don't waste time. We try to be very productive well, all the time. Well, the car insurance yeah. uh, is also lower because we don't commute. Right. You save money if you don't commute because most accidents happen when you commute. Yes. People rear-end each other. Yeah. And uh, the cars that I drive, I don't want anybody to rear-end them. <laughs> Plus, they wouldn't just rear-end me. They drive over me. Because <laughs> I can see under the SUVs, right? <laughs> yeah. Those big trucks, yeah. yeah. I know when... <laughs> I look at the traffic ahead from under the Hummers. And the Yukons and other uh, giant machines, right? Yeah. And I can see their drive shaft. <laughs> yeah, I'm very knowledgeable about drive shaft and uh, sharks. Right? Yeah. Mm. Not that I want to, but because I look under them. No, but we were yeah. very knowledgeable at one point. I mean, we could take it down and uh, change those U-joints. And <laughs> we have gone full circle. We, we've gone from a car that needed replacement of U-joints basically Regularly. every month, right? and used more oil than gas. I mean, I would drive with a full case of oil. Yeah, full case. Spare spark plugs. Spare spark plugs. Spare U-joints. Uh, a piece of wood to knock off the U-joints. In case it wasn't I flat. I could take out yeah. a U-joint and put a new one within 20 minutes. Yeah, we right? were good. On a parking lot. Right? <laughs> to now having four cars that are brand new and don't need any maintenance at all because they're all under warranty. If I have a problem, I call the dealer and they fix it for free because it's all under warranty. I mean, that's how far we've come. And we've made all of that money basically selling photographs. So I think our system works. I mean, we know what we are talking about. And, and looking at the recession, you know, going back to the original idea behind this podcast, we are seeing business after business go under. I mean, just where we are, we, we are not looking very far. We are just looking at our neighbors, right? One of our neighbors run a business called Elite Garage, right? Yes, um, cabinets. Selling very high-end garage cabinets. And apparently, for all purposes, was doing great. I mean, I did not buy from him because... I don't really need garage cabinets that look better than my kitchen. You know, I'd, uh, garage cabinets for me are more practical than anything else. So we have nice cabinets, but I don't think that I need, you know, mahogany garage cabinets. Right? No, not out in the garage you in know. that heat. Yeah. So we did not buy from him, but uh, we just found out a week ago, right, that he had sold his house and moved out. And then we talked to our neighbors and they told us that... Uh, well, he lost the house. It went up for auction. The house went for auction yeah. and uh, he lives with friends and family now. Yeah, he does. And this is another business, you know, basically two doors down from us that seemed to be doing extremely well. And well, he was doing TV right. commercials uh, right. last yeah. year, yeah. I remember that, filming at his house. And we've seen several people right where we live that have lost their home. You know? yes. And these are high-end homes. These are people that are very proud of their homes, so I don't think they're letting them go because they want to. They've you put know. a lot of money into They put the a home. lot of money into it, yeah. These are not cheap homes. And, uh, you know, we were actually joking yesterday that eventually only the artists won't be left. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a joke, and it obviously isn't because we are artists that we are not losing our home or doing better than them. It's because of the way we do things, right? And for one thing, one of the things that we've done for a long time that has brought me a lot of criticism is that we buy everything cash. Yes. That is, and I've been called, you know, labeled anti-American because I'm not for credit. You know, I don't like credit. Um, but that's the way I was raised. I mean, I was raised in a very simple way, which is that uh, you buy things once you have the money to buy them. So if you want a house or if you want a car, you save the money. Then when you have enough, you go out and you buy it. Right. What a concept, you know. I grew up the same way. My dad was in the military. Yeah. 
you know, and you didn't charge anything no. unless it was an emergency. You right. saved your money, and when no. you had your money, then you bought whatever no. it was. And people laugh. I mean, they're like, well, how are you going to save to buy your $70,000 car? How are you going to save to buy your half-million-dollar house? It just takes longer, right. <laughs> you know, but it can be done. Well, you know? And we I, did. We did. I remember uh, being 14 years old. And uh, I wanted this winter coat that was $40. Right. My parents weren't going to buy me that $40 coat. So I had to save all my babysitting money and everything. And, right. you know, uh, it took a little while, but I got that coat. And then not only did I, you know, get the coat that I wanted, but I loved it and I took care of it because mm -hmm. I had worked so hard just to save the money for that coat. And at 16 you know, or 14, 14. $40 14. is like 50 grand today. You know, I mean, it was a lot of money. Yeah, because I mean, it's everything is you know relative. You know, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're washing cars to make forty bucks, you're gonna have to wash a lot of cars at a dollar or two a piece, right? So, you know, if you're babysitting or whatever you're doing, I so think I was only getting a dollar. I mean, I did the same. You know, I, I would <laughs> I would save money to, you know, I've I've saved money since you know I was fourteen, I think, or sixteen. You know, yeah. uh, at first I saved money that my friends gave me. <laughs> then yeah. I save money that I made, and we did you know, that too. You know, it's it's a habit. You know, it's it's a certain inclination that you have. You know, um, I don't like credit. I mean, I and and credit is so easy to get. I mean, every time we go to the bank, uh, and actually we got ticked off at them. I did. They, they look at you and they say, "And would you like a loan with this today? You know, today. Would you I'd, like I'd to like to withdraw two hundred dollars. Not a problem. Here's your cash. And would you like a loan with that? And last time I looked at them and I'm like, you know, getting a loan isn't exactly like getting a beefsteak. No, right? it it's not like buying a can of popcorn, you know. It's it's an important decision that will affect your financial future. So well, let's, let's not dramatize it. And I'm like, yeah, let's dramatize it. Why do you think this country is in the trouble that it is? Because people were overextended. Why do people lose their home? Why do people have their cars reprocessed? Because they can no longer make the payments on it. And why do they have to make payments? Because they bought it on credit. If they had saved money, they would have been able to pay for it. You know, and I'm not saying that everybody can save money to buy, you know, everything. But I think that a lot of people basically look at their disposable income and try to use 100% of it to buy the things that they want. They have no leeway. Mm -hmm. And the minute their income shrinks, they have no way of adjusting. The right. only thing they can do is let go of the things that they can no longer pay for. Well, Napoleon Hill talks about uh, saving 20% of what you make. So, yeah. you know, my sister, if her kids get money as a gift for a birthday or something, she takes a percentage of that and it goes in the bank. But she shouldn't take a percentage of that. They should do it themselves. Yeah. Well, for the little ones right. that are little, you know, that's yeah. different. Benjamin will do it on his own because he just turned 13 and he tends to save almost everything he gets. But, for but the I mean, in ones, France, you know, when, when we did that, uh, that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. There was no credit cards. Credit cards in France came up, at least the first one we had was around 1985. That was the first time my parents had a credit card. And until then, you had basically a checkbook. And you could not draw more money than you had in your bank account. So the fact that there was no credit card was an enormous bonus for me when I grew up. Because credit was not an option. People don't realize that credit cards are basically lines of credit that you don't have to apply for. You get it when you sign up for the card. And some cards are extremely dangerous. I mean, we have American Express cards with no limit. You know, we have cards with limits of 40,000, 100,000. I mean, we could basically go 
buy a car or put down a deposit on a house with these cards. Yes. You have to be extremely cautious. I mean, you're walking around, if you are financially successful, with hundreds of thousands of dollars of line of credit on, on plastic in your wallet. And, and why you, know, you would not use it is only because you've got common sense and you realize that you really should not buy things that you can't afford. You know? um, but of course, you know, the bank isn't going to tell you that. You know? No, and I remember uh, how upset they were when I wanted to cancel some cards because, because we didn't yeah, sure. use them and yeah. I didn't need them and they didn't want to let go. The, the credit industry is really screwed up because you can't cancel the cards once you have signed up for them, even if you never use them. But if you have a credit report, you get marked down because you have too many cards in your name. Yes. And so you go and try to cancel them and they don't want you to, you know. I mean, I remember when we got a credit report, we had perfect credit, except we had too many cards because we can't cancel them. And then I had a high balance on my cards because I have charged things and I pay every month, but I hadn't sent a bill yet, I guess. Right, you know? the payment. So it's like, how do you get perfect score? Well, you would have to, you know, be an angel, right? You know, so it's it's very very challenging, you know. But um, you know, we do use credit cards. We have to because we buy online, and that's the only way to pay. But then, when the bill comes, we write a check and we are done. Yes. That is, I haven't paid a bank fee uh, on credit cards for over ten years now. I I think. Well, we got rid of the credit card debt when I was teaching in Chen Li, and I think that took a couple of years to get rid of all that credit card debt. Yeah, because we had 40 grand uh, of it. We had and a lot when, of when was that, 1999, uh, It must have been like 1998, yeah, I think, was yeah. when we finally were able to pay off the credit cards, and then from that point on, we said we'll never do that we again. We never did it again, yeah. Well, we did not have to. We started doing well, very well, better and better, and we did not have to. And what happened is that we were students. And uh, yes. I, you know, my take is if you stay in school long enough, you'll eventually be completely broke. It's just a matter of time. It I is. mean, when I was doing my PhD, I remember one student, she was in her 40s at the time, which uh, you know, is pretty late to do a PhD, and she was $70,000 in debt. And this is 1993, 1994. Um, and she told me that she did not expect to ever pay it off. She says, I'll die in debt. She said, I did the math. If I get a job, uh, let's say within three years, because she was at the beginning of the PhD program, and I make 40 grand a year, and I buy a house, and I buy a car, and I have kids, I can never pay it off. <laughs> And and I, I thought, you know, and I, I did not do the math, it was too complicated, but I just trusted her judgment. She was not exaggerating, she seemed pretty sound, you know, of mind. <laughs> and I thought, what a, a gloomy future to look up to, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, how horrible to know that ne you'll never be able to get out of your debt, you know. That sounded so horrible, I, I thought, you know. That was the first thing. The first time I had a little bit of a light in my head, telling me, you know, this may not be the way to go. <laughs> and then later on, I saw the full light, and I was like, this is not the way to go at all. There's a better way. Yeah, uh, because you know, when you run a business like we do, you you do have negative aspects. I mean, you have to take care of your own health insurance. You have to take care of your own retirement. You have the uncertainties of the market. But you have a big plus, and that is you're in control of your destiny. Well, we don't have employees. Right. But you are in control of your destiny. That yes. is, your, your income does not depend on a boss that will allow you a raise or not. It does not depend on somebody above you that decides what your future is going to be made of. 
You know, you don't have the conflicts with co-workers. I mean, we have students that lives are literally miserable because their co-workers are, you know, not agreeable, you know, right. and not pleasant to be with. We don't, you know, we don't have the cubicle, right? We, we don't have to worry about getting the corner office with a window on the parking lot or not. You know, none of that, uh, you know, so there is some drawbacks, but there's also some benefits. You know, we're in control of our destiny. We want to do something. We don't have to ask anybody's opinion, you know. And, and if you have savings, which we do, we don't have to ask the bank for a line of credit, and we can just go and do it. You know, so we have a project. We can take it from A and f complete it, and, you know, you're totally autonomous. So it's, it's a big plus, you know. Um, being in charge of your destiny is something that... Uh, gives you a very high level of confidence, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, we talked about fulfillment, I think it's fulfillment, I think it's very fulfilling, mm -hmm. you know. Definitely. Because you don't have to wait for something to happen, you can make it happen right here, right now, you know. Right, it's all in your mind. Yeah, it depends it's on your ambition, basically. Right. Yeah. What your goals are. It has to be goal centered I think that's yeah. what uh, is important during this time, also, is looking at your go goals and you know changing them if they need to be changed or refocusing um, adjusting those goals to meet you know the outcome that you mm -hmm. want to achieve or just having goals most yeah. people don't have goals well i know they fly by the seat of their pants i mean we work with a lot of photographers and very often or having too many projects. Yeah, They're I ask them, what is your goal? Out. And their goal is to take a better photo. Well, that's not a goal because everybody wants to take a better photo. I mean, I've never met a photographer that told me my goal is to take a photo worse than the one I took yesterday. Right? Never. My goal is to take worse photos. Right? No, I never had one. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to take a good photo. So I don't think that's a goal. If a goal is that generic, that it, it is safe to say that it's everybody's goal, it's not a goal. Correct. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Um, I mean... It becomes basically fulfilling a basic need, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if somebody buys a car and say, and say, well, why do you want this car? I say, because I need to go to work. Well, any car will do. That doesn't explain why this one, right? You know, the goal is not specific, you know. So at that point, it's not a goal. It's just fulfilling a basic need. And, and I think that a lot of people need to set up a goal. Everything is goal-centered. Everything in our lives, you know, to go back to the question we get asked, why do we get to do so much? We are goal-oriented. I have goals and I work for them and I don't let anything take me away from the goal as far as I can. Right. You know, I mean, if I get sick, then you've got to back off, you know, but otherwise, um, you know, I, I'm pretty driven right. as, as to, you know, achieving the goal. Mm. It's very important. Yeah. And I have long-term goals and I have short-term goals, and but I'll, you know, I, I've got plenty of goals. <laughs> Yeah, they are very specific. I mean, it's not the place and the time here to talk about it. Just watch what goes on on my website, but you'll see that it's one thing after another. Yeah. You know? Well, the goals are important because if you don't have goals, then whatever somebody suggests, you right. know, you'll yeah. go off on that tangent or you'll go off on this tangent. And, you know, when people propose, you know, ideas and, you know, projects with you and I, you and I discuss where does this fit into what we're doing and what we're no. working on. And if it doesn't fit in, it's out. Right. Why would we bother ourselves? You know, because I don't have yeah. the time. You I don't have the time. Yeah. I don't have the time. I'm not it's interested. Fit in. Yeah, I'm not yeah. interested. I mean, you know, when you run a business, the thing that happens regularly, and I think that anybody that's running a business can relate to this, is you have people that come see you regularly and they'll ask you this very simple question. Have you ever thought of doing X? Yes. And X can be anything. I mean, you know, from offering a new product to doing something 
that you haven't thought of or that you've thought of or whatever. You know, it's, it's, it's their idea of how you should run your business. And the thing that's fascinating when you've run your business for long enough is that most of the time when these people come to you and say, have you thought of doing X? You have thought of doing X. And you've decided that X is not what you want to do. Yes. And so it, it becomes very interesting because at first, you're, you, you know, I was very defensive. I was like, well, you know, I thought about it, but the reason why I don't want to do it is because. And then you engage into an argumentation. Right. And soon enough, I realized that that was really a waste of time. Now I look at them and I say, you know, thank you for your suggestion. Have a nice day. I appreciate it. And I'll never do it because I don't care. I thought about it. It's not for me, you know. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things that I could do that I don't want to do for my personal reason. Right. You know, because they are not... You know, they don't fit within my goals, right? Um, but, uh, you know, you don't want to argue with, with people that say that. You just want to, you know, thank them and let them go. You know, they obviously have a different idea than you, you know. And very often, uh, I remember about people asking me if I, why I, I was not offering certain photographs, for example, of the Grand Canyon. I had tried, and they wouldn't sell. Well, why this, right? But, but they thought it was going to sell. So they are far lower than you in, in the sense of understanding this business, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, they don't know that, you know, certain things don't sell, even though they sound like great ideas, right. <laughs> you know. Right. So you just let them be, you know. They are not studying with you. They are not, they are not part of your life. You just let them be. You thank them for their help and move on, you know. Uh, and, and so that, that's really an important aspect of, of business, you know, that you have to really see things from the perspective of your goals, you know. And then there's always people that want to work with you, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, I have people every day emailing me, asking me if I'm looking for an assistant. I'm not. We are, we are good, the two of us. I don't need an assistant, yes. you know. And, you know, what else can I say? You know, I'm not looking, you know. Um, so you, you just have, you know, would it fit in my, in my goals? No, an assistant would not work in, in my current goals. Right. I don't need an assistant. I'm, I'm fine. So, you know, you really have to see that from that perspective, you know. I found that uh, when I had assistants in my classroom that were quote-unquote helping mm. me, my work doubled. <laughs> yeah. Well, because now you have to do your work, plus yeah. you have to train them on how to do their work, right? Yeah, but yeah. then you also have to, you know, come up with a list of things for them to do for you. So then you have to spend the time, you know telling them what to do or showing them what to do and you know what yeah. I was just so much easier just doing it myself right <laughs> well and then the <laughs> other sure and then the other thing is that our goal is to work together you and I and that's it that's our goal so if you if somebody says can I work with you no you can't because that's not my goal it's that simple you know on the other hand if they want to study the door is wide open we do take students right um, so I think it's a you know it's not like I refuse the help I just you know, structure it in a way that is the way I want to do it, you know. Um, and we have plenty of students that we are working with regularly that have a great time, learn and progress extremely fast. Um, they just can't be assistants because I don't need assistants. <laughs> you know? uh, otherwise, I think I'd have 50 people here running around asking me what to do, and I'd be looking at them saying, you know what, I don't have a clue what you can do. <laughs> You know, why don't you go and have a martini over there and enjoy yourself? Because you know what, you won't be out of my way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and the thing that some people don't understand because it might people might be listening to this thinking, well, that's pretty harsh. No, it's not harsh. The the fact is that with digital, we have far less work than we did with chemical. 
Well, you don't have to run the dark room like you, you did. You don't when have you to run the dark room. I mean, one of the purposes of assistance, and I had assistance when I was teaching in a university. I was running the dark room, and I always had a minimum of two dark room assistants, and I needed them. I could not have lived without them because their main job was mixing the chemicals. And those chemicals have to be mixed. When you run a dark room of a big class, you know, 20, 40 students or several classes, they have to be mixed several times each session. Sure. They have to be replenished, they have to be cleaned, and you don't want to spear them on the floor. And, and nobody can do this by himself. You have to have assistance, supervise the students, whatnot. And even if Help I them. was printing in my own dark room on operational level with a sizable amount of orders, I would have to have assistance. Because I would need them to fill the trays, wash the prints, dry them, mount them, and all of that. With digital, all of that is gone. Right. You know, printing has become a lot simpler. There's no more chemicals. You know, paper doesn't have to be carried into the dark. You know, um, Paint to dry. changing an ink cartridge is you know as simple as putting your socks on, right? I mean, why do we need assistance? It's an antiquated concept, right? I mean, do you need somebody else? Yes, I think that a photography business should be run by two people for the reasons that I described before. Uh, people that do it on their own will face one of several problems, one Burn of these out. three problems. They'll get sick from being basically worn out over years, yes. and they won't know it until it's too late. One day they'll collapse, and they'll go see a doctor, and the doctor says, you know what, you're overworked and you need to take a break, and they won't be able to because there's nobody else. They can't afford to. Right. Two, they'll lose money because, you know, if you're out in the field and somebody wants to place an order, there's nobody to answer the phone, you lose money. Right. And three, they're basically going to get, you know, overworked. They're going to get burned out. They'll they they lose the enthusiasm. Yes. You know, uh, because I don't care how motivated or strong somebody is, you're not going to go 10 years doing this without a hobby. You need a hobby. And as time goes by, you need more and more hobbies. <laughs> yes, you know, you because do. you need more and more time off. You know, you're like, hey, I listen, I haven't worked at these 10 years like a slave to just have the right to continue. Right. I won't have the right to do something else. Right? You know, you, I want to have the right to drive my sports car, go to the country club, take time off, travel with no cameras. Right. I mean, you know, to I me, know. what is full fulfillment? Fulfillment for me is going to a place that's beautiful and not have a camera. Yes. Because I don't have to photograph everything. I photograph the wilderness. I don't photograph you know, everything that I see. And people are always asking me, where's your camera? You know what, my camera is at home. I don't know where right. it is because I don't need one. You know? And I can honestly tell you on those occasions where you tell me you're leaving the camera at home, I know I'm gonna have a great time yeah. with you, you yeah. know, because you're not gonna be working. Yeah, well, that ties into something which, you know, I became aware of recently because we have a house big enough that now I have a double closet, a two-door closet. I, I suppose it's, what, six feet wide and uh, eight feet high, right? I think so. Something like that, rough, roughly, with maybe, what is it, seven shelves. And I decided to put all my cameras in that closet because before we never had a closet big enough to hold them all. So I had some here and there and everywhere, Throughout under the, the bed and the closet, <laughs> in, in, you know, under my desk, you know, in my drawers, wherever. So I put it all there. And one day I opened the door and I thought, my God, look what I have done. I have bought all these cameras over the years. Where did they come from? Where do they come from? Why did I buy so many? It's almost like you put them in there and they multiplied. <laughs> it's almost like they are rabbits. You know, you leave them together and they reproduce at the speed of light. It's exactly. like, why so many cameras? And the reason is because photographers 
think, and I was one of them, I stopped, you know, so I'm, I'm cured, I'm, I have solved my malady. But photographers, including myself, believe that we get better by buying better cameras. And I was on that kick. And, you know, as I said, I had cameras that were worth more than anything else I owned. They were worth more than my car, they were worth more than my house, they were worth more than anything else I had. The most valuable thing in my life was my cameras. Yes. You know? I was Actually, when I bought the first computer, <laughs> that's right, when I, when I bought my very first computer and I was a, a PhD student, I had to get a loan. And I had to put a collateral. What did I put as collateral? My cameras. I know. Because that was the only thing that had any value in my life. I know. You know, but I had expensive cameras. I didn't cameras. have the jewelry. There is no jewelry to be had. No, I had a swatch. That was my jewelry. I had a swatch, <laughs> right? You know, so, so it's very important. And, you know, now when I look at photographers, you know, I, I look at whether their cameras are their most expensive asset or whether there's something else. Right. You know, because to me, that's a measure of success. I mean, how do you measure success? It's not just because you have expensive tools of the trade. It's because you have managed to even out your life where you have a car that's competitive cost-wise with your cameras. You have a house that's competitive with your cameras, you know, um, and, and, and you have a lifestyle that's competitive with your camera. And there's many photographers, I, I can't begin to say how many, that don't have that. Their cameras are their most important asset and they have nothing else. I mean, their house is nothing to write about. They drive a car that they have to fix along the road and they were where we were 10, 15 years ago. Or sometimes worse. I or mean, worse, yeah. Our friend right. George, uh, he lived in an airstream mm -hmm. out in the middle of nowhere on 40 acres outside of Flagstaff. He had no running water, no electricity, but he, you know what? He had his cameras. He had, yeah. he had all Linhoff cameras, which at the time in film were the most expensive. Um, and, and he was, he had the baby Linhoff 4x5, yeah. he had the Linhoff Techni Technorama, which was the panoramic camera, That's didn't correct. have seven thousand dollars for just the body. Yes, you I know, you that. want a lens that'd be fifteen thousand. Thank you very much. Um, you know, and he had that with three lenses. I mean, he had spent twenty-five thousand dollars on this thing for what? To take a panoramic photo, which he would have taken with any camera, uh, because he wasn't printing very big. But the thing that was important with George is that he was the best-selling uh, photographer at the Grand Canyon in terms of postcards and posters. Right. I mean, he, he literally was outselling everybody else. But he didn't need the resolution of those no. cameras for postcards. No. Not for a postcard. He, no. He had another camera, which I forgot what it was. It was a, a 35 millimeter that worked fantastic. Uh, he showed me posters made with the 35 and with the Linhoff, and I couldn't see the difference. He had spent 25 grand basically to please himself. To make him feel better. In, in believing that he was going to become better because he had a better camera, but that did not make him any better. It just took 25 grand out of his bank account. Mm -hmm. That's what it did. That he could have bought a, a better house with, you know. I mean, he would go to Phoenix, because he lived in Flagstaff, to go dancing, right, and to entertain himself and meet, you know, ladies. And he would sleep under the tonneau cover of his pickup truck, basically in the bed of the truck, because he couldn't afford a hotel. In a parking lot. In a parking lot. Yeah. And we always joke, what if he picked up a girl? Say, well, welcome to my pickup truck. Let's go under the tonneau cover and uh, have a good time. I mean, she would have run away thinking she was with a nut, you know. And, and, and I think she would have been justified, you know. So it's, it's completely unrealistic. But if you look at these people from the perspective that just what everybody looks at them from, he was the best-selling photographer. 
It was. And so unless you go on the internet and you check the property value and what car he drives and you know other facts of his life, you'd never know. Because you know you're like, wow, you know, it, it took me ten years to get there, and it did. Took him an enormous amount of work. But you know, selling posters and postcards, you know how many millions of them you have to sell before you make any profit. Right. I mean, you know, a lot, right? Well, and Grand Canyon's yeah. even hurting for sales right now. So postcards and posters aren't selling near as well as they did at the time that George right. was. Right. And alive. so if you need a ten thousand sales to make a profit, now you might not even make a profit at all, right? Because that's the problem with volume. Volume does not generate profit on a single sale. It generates profits on a multitude of sales. Right. While with us, we generate profit on a single sale. You know, we, we, are, we are there. You know, we don't need more than one sale. <laughs> you know? So, you know, uh, but all of these are reasons why I think, you know, some people are doing better than others. It's not just that they are better photographers. It's that they are better business people. You know, and that we studied marketing, and I think that really is a very important aspect of this. You have to study marketing. Well, and you studied economics. Too. I studied economics so. uh, by accident when I was in high school because in France there were three uh, paths, you know, and uh, channels. I don't know what it's called. We could have uh, uh, A, B, or C. You know, so you could be in high school with uh, track A, track B, or track C. And A was literary, and you just did literature. And I found a little bit too unisided you know c was only mathematics and again i thought it was only unisided and i really did not care math for math maths and then b was in between and it was really economics but it was a little bit of literary and a little bit of math and what i thought was a right balance mm -hmm. so i went for b not because i love b but because i did not like a or c and it so happened that b was economics and we studied economy and uh, at the time i did not know why i was studying it but now i realize that it's been very very helpful because right. I understand how the economy works. You know, it's a cyclical system. It is based on money. Um, and there are patterns to it. And there are facts, you know, that we, we really are looking at a big machine. Right. You know, that is not just centered on one country. It's worldwide. It, it, it's, you know, a, a system that ties every country that has something to do with it together, you know. Um, and, and it, it helped me tremendously. And then afterwards, I did study marketing. I did not take a PhD class in marketing. I don't have a master's in business administration or whatever. But I studied marketing with an expert, and I did a formal course of study. It doesn't matter how you study it. It matters that you study it. Right. And I know what I'm doing. And I, we're still you know, reading and studying. Because and marketing constantly evolves. The way we are marketing now is very different from the way I was marketing even two years ago. Um, we evolve. I mean, there's no doubt that if you make no changes, you're not going to survive the recession. You know, uh, those that survive survive because they are smart, not because they are lucky. <laughs> Luck is over. Luck was before the recession. If you were making money because you were lucky before the recession, now you're dying <laughs> because the luck has run out. You know, uh, you know, it's uh, you know, any anybody can sell something successfully when there is a lot of money. It takes a whole lot more work and, and smarts to make money regularly when the recession is there and when people are, are really watching what they're buying. So that about sums it up. I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground here. I think so. A lot of different aspects. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs>